What a great time it was at the Fall Festival. I hope you were able to be here with us on Wednesday. And uh, it was just great to have so many people from our community. In fact, uh, just yesterday, uh, I talked to three different people who um, were at our Fall Festival who aren't a part of our church or part of a church. And so one of them was like, hey, I think I saw you at that Bayshore Fall Festival. Was that you? I was like... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm the pastor, but uh, yeah, so I was there. Uh, So it it was just so awesome uh, to see that. And man, for the people who served, uh, just thank you so much. Uh, Lucas and your team just did such a great job. And I wanna specifically highlight our students. So uh, under Alex's leadership, we have a group of high schoolers that are called Crew, and they serve on uh, Wednesday nights in with our middle schoolers and in our children's ministry, and they're doing such a great job. And at the fall festival, I mean, they were there from setup to tear down, and they made the night so uh, much smoother. Hey, if you're part of Crew, would you just stand up for a second? Can we just celebrate these awesome students? Man, thank you guys. You guys are not the future of the church. You are the church. And so uh, speaking of that, we do have our Disciple Now, our D-Now that's coming up in just a few weeks, geared towards our students, a week of equipping them and encouraging them and uh, letting them have a great time and uh, inviting their friends. And so we do need a few more host homes. And so you can reach out to Alec if you are brave enough to do that. That's kind of my big ask for you uh, this morning to say, hey, can you have a group of middle school boys come and hang out at your house or middle school girls or whoever it might be um, for uh, the weekend? And so you can find out more information about the training and background check and all that by reaching out to Alec. Also, uh, go ahead and make sure on your calendar, Saturday, November 5th is on there because that is our serve day. It's an intergenerational serve day where many of our church are serving out in the community, uh, serving organizations together. And so we would love for you to be a part of that. There's information in your bulletin and online and you can sign up to be a part of that right now. All right, well, right now, I also invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 14, verse 53. We're actually going to spend two weeks looking at this section of scripture so that we can take next week to talk about Pontius Pilate and his question, what is truth? Today, we will focus more on the religious leaders and, of course, on Jesus, who I think demonstrates in today's text why and how we can stay committed and maintain character even though there are challenges and the circumstances around us are difficult. To remind you of the background, Judas identified Jesus to the religious leaders so they could arrest him late in the night. And in verse 53 of chapter 14, it says, and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priest and the elders and the scribes came together. So the crowd that arrested Jesus led him to the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest at this time. John's gospel said they first led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, uh, who's now the high priest, actually remained connection remained connected to the function of the priesthood because he was the previous high priest, so he kind of was like a godfather of the priest. Now, I want you to know, these are real historical people. What we are talking about, the people we are talking about, there is evidence of their existence outside of the Bible. Uh, Caiaphas' family tomb has been discovered. Remnants of his home have been discovered. And so these are real people that happened. This is real history. 
So the home of Caiaphas was more like a palace. It was a complex that was big enough for the Sanhedrin, uh, which had 71 members, plus chief priest. The Sanhedrin was the highest court in Israel. It was derived from the organizing of elders listed in Numbers chapter 11. It had become a very political group and was actually despised by the lot, a lot of the common Jews in this day. Now, all members of the Sanhedrin are not present on this occasion. The Sanhedrin needed a, member, a minimum of 23 members uh, for a quorum. So there are probably at least 23 of them here on this late night. Verse 54 affirms that it is late at night. It tells us Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, we talked about what was going on with Peter on October 2nd. And we do see here that Peter is at least aware of some of what is happening. Verse 55 says, The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Again, I don't think Mark meant all 71 of the council, but all of those who were there. They're looking for two people to give a credible charge against Jesus. And they're having trouble finding two people whose testimonies match up. And it is a requirement of the law to have two witnesses to sentence someone to death. I suspect there was probably some looseness to what they were looking for because they weren't following many things that were required by the Sanhedrin. Trials were supposed to be conducted during the day. This is at night. Trials were not supposed to be on the Sabbath or the eve of the Sabbath. This was. Convictions would have to be confirmed the following day, not the same day, like what happens here. And the Sanhedrin were to, had to officially meet in the inner courts of the temple, and here they are at Caiaphas' house. This reveals the whole thing reeks of an agenda and corruption of power. They did not have the proof to arrest Jesus in the first place. And so now they're trying to get witnesses to to you know, come up with something that substantiated them arresting Jesus. But people were not saying things that they could take to the governor of Judea to have Jesus tried as a criminal. It says in verse 57, some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. So two witnesses refer to something that Jesus had said that caught a quite a few people's attention. But Mark points out they're not actually saying what Jesus said. Perhaps John records what Jesus did say the clearest. John chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. Says the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? He's demonstrating his authority. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is talking about himself, and he predicts that he will rise when he is destroyed, and that that is the evidence that he has authority from the Father. When I come back to life. Now in Mark chapter 13, we learn that Jesus did also say that the physical temple will be destroyed. A prediction that also comes true. 
But here, in what John is telling us and what Jesus is now being accused regarding, he's talking about the temple of his body being destroyed and raised up. Because in Jesus coming to the earth, Jesus was making it possible for God to dwell with man permanently. The point of the temple was to be a symbol that God wants to dwell with man, that God wants to live with people. And so the temple, the tabernacle, and then the temple is there to represent God dwelling with people. But at the destruction of the temple and the abolishment of the temple, there's not a need for a new temple because the temple, something greater than the temple, is here. It is Jesus. That's what Jesus' message was. But John points out, that even the disciples struggled to understand this until Jesus died and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So certainly if there's confusion amongst the disciples, there's confusion amongst the religious leaders regarding what Jesus meant. And as confused as they have, may have been, and as much as they didn't like Jesus, they still didn't have evidence to arrest him. Verse 59 says, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. But they said, we've got enough here. We can use this. And they began to move forward on the grounds that he made a threat to the temple. And so verse 60 says that the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? He says, what do you have to say for yourself about what they're saying here? But verse 61 says he remained silent and made no answer. And this will characterize Jesus. And this is what was prophesied about the Messiah. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now so the, since he doesn't answer this question, the high priest asked him verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the son of the blessed. He says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? The eulogetes, that's what blessed means. It's referring to God. Are you the son of God? When they use the title Christ, they refer to the deliverer out of the house of David who would, would liberate Israel. Is this you? Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of, the, of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, Jesus claims that he is much more than the hum human messianic deliverer that they are expecting. He is the son of man that Daniel's prophecy foretold about in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. He is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, according to Psalm 110. By the days of Jesus, most had expected that there will be a suffering servant and there would be a Davidic king. No one imagined that the suffering servant and the Davidic king would be one and the same. How could that be possible if God came to earth? And Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies of the suffering servant and the Davidic king. But he was not establishing an earthly kingdom as many expected. But to quote him, he was establishing a kingdom that is not of this world. And he says, you will see me reigning and you will see me coming with the clouds of heaven in victory. Our Alan Cole says that if the high priest had ears to hear, there was a solemn warning in this choice of title, for this is the son of man vindicated and enthroned 
and returning in judgment. But what the high priest heard was blasphemy. Verse 63 says, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You see, this was his goal all along. Now, he says, we don't need to decide if those two witnesses are credible about the temple. We have heard what he has said right here. We have got him to say something that is grounds for us to not only arrest him, but to have him tried and crucified. And he tears his clothes in horror of what Jesus said. This is something that was common for people to do, but here he's doing this more of a, of a show, more of a showy act to get people to join in so that they would too be offended by what Jesus said. He would have done well in the days of social media. And he says, verse 64, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. To claim to be the one who sits at the right hand of God is to claim to be divine. It's blasphemous if it isn't true. If a cult leader says, I'm the son of God to set themselves apart from other believers, it's blasphemous. If someone says, I am God to religious people, we consider it blasphemous. And these religious people obviously did not believe that it was true of Jesus. And according to Leviticus chapter 24, blasphemy was an offense that could be punished by death. Now it says that you have to directly blaspheme the name of the Lord, which Jesus technically did not do, but it's enough for this crowd. And so verse 65 says, some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now there are a lot of things that we read about in the Bible that we have to dig and I have to really help us understand when I'm teaching it, uh, its cultural significance. Spitting in someone's face is not one of them. There's still not much more that is degrading today than being having someone spit in your face. And Matthew explains what they're doing. Matthew chapter 26, verse 67 and 68, he says, then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that, that struck you? So they spit in his face so they can't really see and they hit him and they're saying, if you're such a prophet, why don't you tell us who it is that hit you? Now the rest of this chapter is a break in the narrative and it deals with Peter's denial of Jesus, which we covered on October 2nd. So I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to that if you were not here. And we're going to move forward into chapter 15 now to continue with this storyline. So chapter 15 of Mark, verse 1 says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea for the Roman Empire. He had responsibility over military, administrative, financial, and judicial oversight of the region. Caesarea was typically where he resided, but he was in Jerusalem at this time because of Passover. Officials would typically travel uh, during festivals. So the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate early in the morning. The Roman governor did not care about their religious disputes. John tells us in John chapter 18, verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. The Sanhedrin could condemn a man to death, 
but they were not permitted by the Romans to actually carry out the execution. Therefore, they bring Jesus to Pilate. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, that they begin to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, this would be cause for punishment. To claim to be a king when there is only one king, Caesar, that would make him a political rebel. So back to Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 2, it says that Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? I kind of imagine it's early in the morning. He's like, are you the king of the Jews? Just answer the question, you know. Jesus says, that is what you have said about me. That's what others are saying about me because that is what was being said of Jesus. He's the king of the Jews. And verse three says, the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? From all the gospels, we can conclude at least that they were saying that Jesus was misleading the Jews. So he was a deceiver. We can conclude that they were saying that he was forbidding tribute to Caesar. So he is a political rebel and that he was claiming to be Christ. So he is a blasphemer. And Pilate asked, what do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate was amazed. People would always defend themselves. People always defend themselves. And the language here is written to say that he began to be amazed. Pilate would be amazed by Jesus over the next few hours. Luke describes that at this point, Pilate actually tried to have Herod deal with this since Jesus was from Galilee and that was Herod's jurisdiction. Herod found no guilt in Jesus, yet he didn't want to deal with the political aftermath of releasing him, so he sends him back to Pilate since the crime took place in Judea. There's not an actual code for trying non-Roman citizens in the provinces so the governor could make up his own rules. Pilate decides he's going to punish Jesus and then release him. And he tries to do it in a way that would satisfy the Jews. Verse 6 says, Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. The, at the feast means at Passover. And we're not certain on when this custom originated, but it was likely a political move where they would say, Hey, to help honor you and your feast, your religious holiday, we're going to release somebody for you. Verse 7 says, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. See, there's some manuscript evidence that Barabbas' name could have been Jesus Barabbas. But what we know about him for sure is that he was notorious and that he was a political rebel. He may have even been revered by the common Jews, kind of like a, a Robin Hood, if you will. And yet, he's arrested because he's a political rebel. And the reason that they're accusing Jesus of deserving death is that he's a political rebel. So why would they be okay with getting rid of Barabbas, releasing Barabbas, but not Jesus, if they're both political rebels? Pilate knew their motivation is not really loyalty to Rome. This is probably why he proposed Barabbas. This revealed that this was not about concern for Rome. It was about envy. And it was about power. 
John shows this to us a little more than the other gospel writers. John chapter 19, verse 12 through 15 says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. These are the very people who argued that it was not lawful for them to have to follow all of the laws handed down by Caesar. And yet here they say, we have no king but Caesar. There's a very political nature to this. Pilate wanted to release Jesus. He did not even see why he deserved to die. And it is also worth noting that Pilate felt something about Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, he records that while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now next week, we're gonna focus in on Pilate. But I read this today because it shows something big is going on here. Now, Craig Blomberg says that it was Pilate's job to remain loyal to Caesar while pacifying the Jews. And it was becoming more and more apparent that releasing Jesus and pacifying the Jews were not compatible. Verse 11 tells us, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. Three times Pilate would ask the crowd and three times they would answer, crucify him. Verse 14 says, and Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. They're not answering the questions. They just want him crucified. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The word scourge is almost casually mentioned in this text. It means that he was bound to a post by the wrist, high over his head, Several strands of leather attached to a wooden pole would be used to beat him, varying in harshness. Often people would die as a result of this. And Jesus predicted that all of this would happen. Mark chapter 10, verse 34 tells us that Jesus says, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him and the third day, he shall rise. Jesus knew, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be spit on and rejected and killed. And I'm going to rise from the grave. And as I think about what Jesus was going through, I think about how Jesus knew who he was 
and he still endured the suffering that took place here. And I think about the religious leaders then who they wanted the promises of God, but any threat to the earthly threat to that caused them to react in a big way. And I think about us when we face trials and how we're tempted to give up or give in to whatever it might be going through. And there's really a mentality difference between Jesus and between how we might often be. A, a few weeks ago, I, I always keep money in my wallet uh, because just in case, you never know what might happen. And I had a $100 bill in my wallet and I went to pull it out of the wallet and when I did it, this happened. It ripped. And why do I keep hundreds? I listen to a lot of 90s rap music, I don't know. But I had a $100 bill in there. And so I was like, oh no. And at that moment I realized I have absolutely no clue what happens when this happens to a $100 bill. Because it's happened to a $1 bill before, it's happened to you know, maybe a $5 bill before, but this is worth some money. And I come to find out that you, it is still worth money, but a lot of places aren't and shouldn't take it because uh, you gotta go and you gotta exchange it. And I, just, I thought about that idea that I have this bill that is clearly worth $100, it clearly has value, but how many people right in front of me would not take it and would not accept it for its value. And as I think about Jesus here, I realize that Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows who the Father is. He knows what is going to happen. And I, I wanna take just a few moments to take a closer look at Jesus' perspective and how that should fuel our perspective and life. And the first thing I wanna point out is this. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. He knows that God is on the heavenly throne. He might be standing before the religious leaders and before Pontius Pilate and before Herod, and he might hear of Caesar, but he knows that God is on the heavenly throne. And Jesus knows that life is eternal. And Jesus has eternity in mind. And Jesus values what is important over what is immediate. And we've seen that throughout the last passages of scripture we've been reading. And that's the mentality that we need to have. And when we have that mentality, it allows us to be content even when we compare ourselves to those who are around us who might have what we don't have. It allows us to realize we don't have to prove ourselves in every situation. We don't have to win every argument. And there are some things that don't matter that much. It causes us not to have a misplaced passion about worldly things. And it causes us to be able to be generous people who give sacrificially, not expecting an earthly exchange or reward but a heavenly exchange, a reward. And it can fuel us to be people who serve, not to get back from others, but because of who we know we are in Christ. And I think this is an important aspect of our life on earth. We have to understand that things are not always going to go the way that we want them to go on earth. 
And what I would suggest to you is that remaining faithful to God in the midst of that is your calling. 1 Peter chapter 2 is a text that came to my mind as I thought about what Jesus is going through here. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 19 tells us this. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, I want to just restate this because I want to make sure you hear this clearly. God's word is saying, when you suffer in a way that you do not deserve, it is God's grace on your life. It is God's grace on your life when you suffer for something you did not do and in a way that you did not deserve. Now, we have to acknowledge that often people are looking for sympathy and credit for facing their consequences of their actions. Sometimes people didn't give, didn't save, went into debt, and they're in a trial, and they want sympathy, and I love you, and everything happens for a reason, and this reason is that you made stupid decisions. Sometimes people didn't trust the word. They didn't listen to the advice of their parents or whoever speaks into their life. And they entered into a relationship with a guy or a gal who wasn't good news. And now they're paying for that decision. You made that choice. Sometimes as parents, we don't prioritize God. We don't prioritize church. We don't prioritize instruction in our children and values in our parenting. And then we experience the results of that. And what you need to do this morning is you really need to acknowledge the consequences you're facing are a result of the actions and choices that you made. And you need to repent. And there is so much grace. His mercies are new every morning. But this passage in 1 Peter 2 is saying sometimes people suffer as they are doing good. That sometimes people are faithful givers, they do have integrity. And yet they have financial troubles or they keep being passed up for opportunities. Sometimes that spouse is faithful and is committed and they're not receiving that back from their spouse. Sometimes we do raise children as best we can to know who God is and to make the right decisions and one of our children is rebellious or a prodigal. And God is saying here, this is actually a part of following Jesus on earth. Verse 21 says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. It says, this is your calling. You're following Jesus and if we really think about what that means, we look at the life of Jesus and he suffered 
for what God had called him to. And God got glory from his life through that suffering. And in the same way, that may very well be a part of what your life is, and it is a gracious thing, and it is an opportunity for the glory of God to shine through you. The world does not measure things the way Jesus measures things, but sometimes following Jesus means that in a sense of evaluating things, you lose. But his kingdom is not of this world. And our eyes need to be on the kingdom that is eternal and the God who is on that throne and not sacrifice the important for the immediate. And when we look to Jesus, we see how he pressed forward or a part of how he pressed forward. He displayed confidence in the word of God. He displayed confidence in the word of God. Jesus was the word of God. He's the clearest revelation of who God is. But we also see in the life of Jesus that he knew and he trusted in the word of God. First Peter chapter two tells us he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continuing, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus remained faithful to God in the midst of the mocking and the scourging and the spitting on and the accusations and the being killed. Why? He knew God's plan. He knew God's power. And he knew God's promise. You can know these things. You can know what God's goal is for your life. You can know how God works in and through you. You can know the promises of God to help you get through the challenges of life. They are right here. In God's word. When people tell me I don't hear God, I wonder if their Bible is closed. The word of God has said to us all of these things. And the word of God said to Jesus, and he knew this, that his suffering was necessary for the salvation of God's people. And I have to close by recognizing that that is a part of Jesus' motivation. He suffered so he could live with us forever. Jesus suffered so he could live with us forever. Now, perhaps I should have worded that differently because that almost makes it sound like it was his privilege to get to live with us forever. Maybe I should have said he suffered so we could live with him forever. But the scripture does tell us that the joy that was set before Christ is why he endured the cross. And the joy set before Christ was us being with him, was the fulfillment of the temple. God with man. And in Jesus, something greater than the temple is there. The temple was temporary and symbolic of what God makes permanent. The apostle Paul says that when we're called to Christ, that is what is happening. Ephesians chapter two, verse 19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what's happening. The church, not a building, the church of Jesus Christ is growing and is the vehicle through which God gives glory. The Spirit dwells in all those who are found in him. 
And if you know, in the temple, the reason that, we could, that God was there and we could have access to God and have communion with God is because of the sacrifices that were offered to God. And what Christ was doing on the cross was becoming that ultimate sacrifice. Back to our text in 1 Peter, it says in chapter two, verse 24 and 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. That's what this text is telling us here is that the good news of Jesus Christ is according to the promise of God and the plan of God and by the power of God, he endured the cross. He went through with this so that we could be made right with him. It is by his wounds that we have been healed. And so that's why we live for him. This is the motivation to live. The reason we give sacrificially is because Christ was given for us. The reason that we maintain character instead of the opportunities of this world, if they're at odds with one another, is because we wanna be faithful to God because he was faithful to us. The reason that we are faithful to God regardless of how people are treating us is because we don't live conditioned upon how people treat us, but we live conditioned upon what Christ did for us on the cross. The reason we can be silent in arguments and not have to prove ourselves is because we have victory in Jesus Christ. The reason we show unconditional love and grace to our children and all those with whom we have influence is because of the unconditional love and grace that Christ has showed to us. The reason we serve people even when we are not valued is because because Christ served us when we considered him not. And the reason that we are content, even when we compare ourselves to a world and see all the things that we don't have, is because we know who we are in Christ. Back to that $100 bill, which I can't find right now, so hopefully I didn't lose it. Is it has value. And all I have to do is take it to a bank because they'll give it to the government and it'll... They'll take it out of circulation and put a new one into circulation because it still does have that value. And I was just thinking today, our value is shown to us very clearly here in what Christ was doing for us. And yet, I think so many people aren't taking that simple step of going to Christ, confessing our sin, realizing the depth of our sin and what he did, and then truly understanding and having our value given to us. It's broken. And we're taping it up with religion and works and influence and wealth and trying to be a good person and all these things. And as much as we might tape it up and we might write in marker in God we trust, there is one mediator between God and man. There is one who can make that exchange for us to really have our value, and that is Jesus Christ. And my plea to you today is to understand the depth of your sin and the depth of God's love for you and that Christ would endure the cross, trusting in the plan and the promise of God to redeem us and live in that. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you so much for you. And I pray now, God, that we would be just ever so mindful of you being accused of a crime you did not commit, but pressing forward 
because your kingdom is not of this world. Trusting in the plan and the power and the promises of God. And Lord, we not only have an example in you of how we ought to live, but we have the source of life. And so Lord, I pray that we would respond to you by trusting in God's plan and power and promises that are so evident in the clearest picture of who God is, you, Jesus. And we pray these things in his worthy name, amen.